0: Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman.
1: David Hurt is another uh, extraordinary performer in our Chautauqua Actors uh, Guild, I guess I can call it. I don't think I've ever... Called it a gill before, uh, David. Uh, but uh, how about group? Maybe that's, that's a little bit you better. You can call
0: us anything you want as long as you hire us.
1: <laughs> that's exactly right. Uh, David uh, has uh, been in Kentucky uh, all of his life. Uh, left uh, for a few adventures that uh, we'll talk to him about. Uh, but welcome to our uh, Think Humanities podcast. Thank you, Bill. Uh, David plays two characters. We're going to talk about. Uh, but I want to talk to him about his own character first, and. Uh, just tell us a little about yourself, your background, your your Kentucky roots, and the time that you spent away from here, and we'll circle around and let you talk about what you do for Kentucky Humanities.
0: Okay. Um, I, I grew up in Mercer County, uh, in kind of the heart of the most historical section, you know, with old Fort Herod there, you know. And, um, I, I grew up about a mile down the road from the only cave in Kentucky that Daniel Boone has really documented to has been the Spent the winter in, you know, and I camped there weekly during the summer times. Now, where is that, David? It's on Handy Pike, near where it intersects with the Shakertown-Bergen Road. Hmm. It's on private property. You can't really go to it, but I came in the back way. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, of course, I grew up in Shakertown and spent a lot of time. I went to Shakertown Elementary School and spent lots of time on the Dix River and Kentucky River nearby you know that was long before the dixie bell was ever tied up there there was an old drunk that lived in a tar paper shack with garfish skeletons nailed to the side of his <laughs> yeah <laughs> he, he would rent rowboats for 50 cents
1: so. no kidding wow
0: so i i mean i came by my interest in history really just with my mother's milk almost you know and my dad's uh, was from Pike County, and his parents had lived in what's a very historical farm. They were the first settlers on the Big Sandy, and um, it was called the Leslie Settlement. Uh, There's a golf course there now, but at the time I visited there in the summer, it was a 500-acre farm, and when it went out of the family in 1985, there had never been an internal combustion engine on the farm not a tractor, not a car, not a lawnmower, nothing. And
1: they weren't Mennonite or no, Amish? No, no, they were just- Just to, chose to do it the-
0: They chose to do it the, the old-, old they were tight as the bark on a tree. They wouldn't- use
1: mules or horses for plowing?
0: They raised 200 acres of corn with mules. And I spent- oh, Until
1: 1985? Yeah, yeah. That is pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, so, uh, you know, Pike County, my dad was born in 1900 in Pike County, which was like uh, about 1850 in the rest of the states, you know. Those things were kind of behind you know so i got a ton of history from my grandfather he would sit on the porch till he died died in 90 when he was 98 years old and i was sitting just listening to him spin tales about his life in the mountains you know and so i, I that was my background so it, the modern world came as quite a shock to me when i went to uk and uh-huh. You know, there was the civil rights uh, movement and the anti-war movement. This was during and, the 60s. Right, the 60s, yeah. And you were
1: telling me you um, you, you went to Woodstock.
0: I did. I went to Woodstock. Uh, it sounded like a really good party mm-hmm. to me. You, so.
1: you, you were at Alice's Restaurant, too?
0: I, I, you know, I, I was talking to somebody the other day, and I can't even remember where Alice's Restaurant was <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, was it maybe in Woodstock, New York? Uh, it was near there, yeah. I think, yeah. But anyway, yeah, I spent some time in, the, in the, doing summer stock in Vermont, and lived in Boston a little while, and ended up going to Woodstock, and then, you know, right straight to graduate school after that, and from the ridiculous to the sublime. <laughs>
1: yeah, but uh, you put your acting on hold for a while and and farmed.
0: I did. <clears throat> I I really did not look forward to the idea of moving to Los Angeles or New York City to pursue an acting career. I, uh, just, I've never enjoyed big cities very much, and it would have been a real chore and a and a hardship. And so, I came back to help my dad on the farm one summer. My mother had just died, and he was kind of struggling there. And so, I came back to help him. And I just, I just thought, man, this is what I like. This is what I love.
1: Working for yourself and working outdoors. That's right. Yeah. And so. Physical labor. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, and just everything about it. And it kind of played in, you know, my, my dad's idea of farming was not as something that you can do because you can't do anything else. It was very intentional for him, and, and it has been for me, too. It's both of us, you know, when, can, can make the case that it's the one honorable occupation. Um, I know I get plenty of argument about that, but...
1: Well, uh, there is
0: a case to be made.
1: Uh, you can also argue that it's a, it's a tough life, but, but an honorable life. And uh,
0: It's tough if you don't like it, but, it's, but if yeah. you like it, it's, I can't imagine anything better.
1: Well, can you imagine if we didn't have people still working on farms in Kentucky?
0: Well, if we have very few, you know, and it's gotten so big. My sister's got a farm in McCracken County, and the guy that rents her farm is, farms 10,000 acres mm. by himself gigantic equipment raising you know. soybeans and soybeans what else and corn. Yeah, yeah that's right yes yeah, that's of... some real farm country down there <laughs> it, it is that's right yeah
1: yeah so you um you did that for a while in fact for for a number of years and uh it, it, tell us about your your place where you decided to uh to maybe start doing a little acting
0: well tobacco was my mainstay and i had bought a farm near Frankfurt with uh, two mortgages and really didn't have a lot of room for You know, mistakes. And when tobacco started going down the tubes there in their early 90s, um, I I just could no longer make mortgage payments, you know. So my bank totally lost their sense of humor with me, you know. So I sold all but a house in 15 acres and thought about, well, got this degree from Illinois in theater, you know, so maybe I can do some of that. So I started auditioning around Lexington and Frankfurt in community theaters, you know, and ended up getting, you know, did a lot of work with uh, another one of our Chautauquans here, Kevin Hardesty, out at the Lexington Shakespeare Festival, and um, Stage One Children's Theater in Louisville that operates at the Center for the Arts there. And just about every place they'd do a play, I was there, just like, the fellow that lives at the church door, <laughs> at the foot of the cross, so to speak, and got a pretty good resume together of that stuff, and ended up teaching at Moorhead, you know, a little bit for about ten or twelve years, theater and speech mainly, and then um, Chautauqua. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you you first played
1: uh, a fellow named Mayo that that is not in our um, repertoire uh, today, but uh, you and Virginia Carter got together and, and thought maybe this would be a good character to tell real briefly. He was a an East Kentucky coal baron for a while. Is That's that right?
0: Correct. In fact, Dr. Thomas Clark was asked who are the ten most influential Kentuckians in your opinion, and John C. C. Mayo was on his list of the ten. Uh, he was a coal baron who bought a, tons of mineral rights, something on the order of five hundred thousand acres, maybe, of mineral rights for almost nothing because there were no railroads. And he talked uh, the L and the CNO into putting lines into the mountains, you know, and they terminated on both sides of the same mountain, uh, that divides Pike County and Letcher County. And they built the town of Jenkins and sold it all to Consolidation Coal Corporation and including Butcher Holler, where Loretta Lynn was born, you know, that was all John C. C. Mayo, mineral rights. He was a school teacher went to school over here in Millersburg when it was Kentucky Wesleyan and a survey of the mineral resources in the state had just come out and he got his hands on it and decided to, you know I can do something with this. So did he own the mines uh, or no, just the never, land? He never had anything to do with the mining. Yeah. He's he just sold delta mineral rights uh-huh. and and I thought it was a great character because you know eastern Kentuckians are stereotyped so often you know as kind of one gallus farmer with a jug of liquor over one shoulder and a you know, riding a bony mule. But this, this was not that. Mm-hmm. This was not that.
1: Tell us about the house he built in Paintsville.
0: I think everybody in the state of Kentucky ought to go visit this place at least once because it is a most fantastic house. Owned by the Catholic Church, and now it's called Our Lady, Our Lady of the Mountain School. But uh, he built it in 1912. It took seven or eight years to build it, and he only got to live in it two years before he died. But it is a fantastic house. Is it open to the public? If you go and knock on the door, the nuns, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. if it's not during school hours, they'll take you through. And, of Mm -hmm. course, they've painted over all the hand-painted murals on the walls, and a lot of the fixtures are gone, including some of the stained glass windows and the chandeliers and stuff. But just the scale of this house is... I've never been... In a, in a house like it, and I'm not so sure, but what it may be the biggest house in the state of Kentucky, even now. Tell us about uh, now, would that be bigger
1: than the governor's mansion?
0: Oh, yeah. Oh. In fact, John C.C. C. Mayo donated the money for the governor's mansion oh. <laughs> and, and was in the reception line. He got McCreary elected governor in order to clear up a few little problems <laughs> with land titles. So, you know. Well,
1: and, and tell us about the. the uh, the house size because there's a comparison to uh and and that's a, that's a good story
0: well those those folks uh, that had been on our ironworks pike i think it is where Elmendorf farm was located been, the ben ally hagen place there's four big columns standing out there kind of a photo op that a lot of people use these days but that was a big house and it may have been to a party there back maybe you know maybe 1905 or something like that and while everybody else was dancing and having cocktails in the house, he slipped out in the yard and stepped off the side the size of this place, and he built his house in Painsville, one foot longer and one foot wide. <laughs> so he could say, we've got the biggest house in the state of Kentucky, uh-huh. right here in the mountains.
1: You um, uh, began to um, develop your characters, Lily Cornett and, and Grandpa Jones, and just uh, as far as background, and, and this is what our Chautauqua program is all about. It's about history and it's about telling Kentucky stories. And, and John C.C. Mayo is, is an excellent example of someone uh, of historical nature, of uh, uh, a character who was a prominent person in Kentucky. Gosh, if if uh, Dr. Clark uh, put him in the top ten, you know he's somebody. Yeah. But, right. but Lily Cornett and Grandpa Jones, talk about your, your two characters that you're still currently playing now.
0: Well, the Lily Cornett, uh, first, I mean, is it, absolutely the opposite from John C. C. Mayo. Mayo was wealthy, prominent, famous all over the world. People knew of him, you know, at the time. Lily Cornett was never anybody He was poor from Letcher County, worked as a coal miner most of his life, traded livestock, you know, just catch as catch can like most people that weren't born with a silver spoon in their mouth to do. Uh, But he invested all of his money that he made working for a dollar a day in the mines. He bought tracts of virgin timber in a very remote part of Letcher County. And most of the timber by the time, by the 1920 or 1915 or so, already been cut in accessible places. But Lily bought in way up in the head of Line Fork on the north face of Pine Mountain. It was still available, Virgin Timber, what they call old growth forest now. And he invested all of his money in this five hundred acre tract. Some of it he earned at Walter Reed Army Hospital when as in a crooked card game he ran. <laughs> Plus he had a pension for, he got out of World War One. He didn't serve, he got injured in... Uh, for dicks, before he ever went overseas, but he he had money at a time when nobody else in Letcher County had any money. So when a track of this timber came up, he was able to buy it. You see,
1: and, and when you say a track, how how many acres is that?
0: It's the whole thing is five hundred acres now, Okay. And he would buy it fifty acres at a time, a tract okay. of fifty or mm-hmm. a tract of a hundred come mm-hmm. up for sale. You know, mm-hmm. contiguous, he'd mm-hmm. buy it, mm-hmm. and his. When he died in 1958, I believe it was, but his family con- uh, guided, conducted guided tours over this tract of land for a long time. In fact, Harry Cottle, um, who wrote Night Comes to the Cumberlands and was a prominent Appalachian scholar, used to take people who came to investigate the subject of poverty, <laughs> he would take them to Lily Corner and mm-hmm. woods to say, this is what the possibilities are mm-hmm. in eastern Kentucky.
1: Why, how did he uh, or anybody in the family protect that from being logged out uh, uh, even after he died?
0: They made the decision that trees are more important than dollar bills. And that's, that's I mean, I've talked to these people. I know them all. I know his, grand, his grandchildren. I know two of his children are still living. Talk to them and they're people who highly value the natural world and their heritage. And their their needs are small. They're not, uh, you know, they don't they don't need to go to a condo in Florida every winter. And uh, they're not poverty stricken by any means. They're all very well educated, uh, school superintendents, architects, various things. But they've all kind of made it on their own hook. It-
1: the, uh, the property now, the uh, uh, is it still 500 acres? Still 500 acres. A- and yeah. what's the connection with Eastern Kentucky University?
0: Well, the state of Kentucky bought it in 1978, I believe it was, for about a quarter of a million dollars. And they could not ever figure out any real way to administer it exactly. It didn't fit into the state bureaucracy. So they turned it over to Eastern, who uses it now as a research forest. Eastern has a sustainable studies program there. An environmental program
1: is it likely is it under the auspices of Eastern I mean or does the family still have uh, not ownership but uh, a decision uh, on whether or not uh, it'll always be uh, there in Eastern Kentucky for people to use
0: I don't know exactly but I, I would assume that the terms of the sale would say uh, I can't pronounce it exactly, uh-huh. but in perpetuity, in perpetuity. is that legal uh-huh. term?
1: Yeah. just means a long time. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Uh-huh.
0: And so a lot of graduate students come from all over the United States and the world yeah. to do research projects there.
1: So so um, uh, you can find that, what are the age of uh, the timber of the trees that, that uh, in an old growth forest are, 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 they're some 200 years old.
0: Oh yes, yes. Yeah, many of those trees were, were saplings when Daniel Boone came through Cumberland Gap in 1773 or four, or whatever that was. Now, of course, the biggest trees died from the chestnut blight, and that's a prominent part of my story that I tell, is the Lily's reaction to the chestnut blight set him off on a real tear. He was an eccentric guy, and this put him over the edge, and he wreaked vengeance uh, of a really funny sort on a local timber baron, who, who was always trying to steal his timber and always trying to buy it for nothing. And, and it's uh, pretty hysterical what uh, Lily did to him. <laughs> well, we'll have to,
1: we'll have to wait till your performance before right. we hear the, the <laughs> end of that story. Uh, so Grandpa Jones, um, many people will remember uh, Grandpa uh, from Hee Haw fame, but uh, he was uh, a colorful figure uh, for many years on the Grand Ole Opry. Uh, as well as network television. But there's uh, another story about his life, too, and how he got started. So there's another fellow that uh, just sort of struggled for a while, didn't he?
0: He did, yeah. he was. Uh, his family were tenant farmers in Henderson County, raised tobacco. And something like the same thing that happened to me in my farming career happened to them. when, And, you know, in the 1920s, uh, the bottom fell out of almost all the farm economy. This was prior to the 1929 collapse of, the banks you know but farmers were hurting all through the 20s and you know the all the black uh, agricultural workers in the south you know rode the rails to chicago you know and up north and the same with white folks all over the south and his family grandpa's family, his name was lewis jones and lewis uh, and his family moved to akron ohio when lewis was about 15 years old and they all got jobs up there and that's kind of where his career started but he he he, it started because he sang songs that he had learned in Henderson Um, many of them from black musicians who played in the courthouse steps in Henderson and the style of playing and the songs themselves and it made people feel like they were back home you know they were lost, many of them in the big cities. Many of them had lost their jobs in 1929. Factories started closing and all that, you know. And uh, people were desperate. And, and he was always said that it, if uh, he was proud of a lot of stuff, but nothing as proud as being able to put a smile on somebody's face that was experiencing hard times. And I thought that was a story worth telling. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: that was also uh, the time period that... Uh Harriet Arnaud uh, wrote The Dollmaker. That's right. And that is, uh, if we can make a, a, a novel a book recommendation to our listeners, uh, uh, probably captures the migration of, um, of Kentuckians, uh, of Southerners, uh, to the north, uh, to Michigan and, and uh, other places in the north, Akron, Ohio, right. as, yeah. as well as any documented, uh, it, even though it's fiction.
0: And I have to say, you know, there was a brilliant made-for-TV movie, based on that book that starred Jane Fonda uh, and Levon Helm. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think it's available on Netflix anymore, but you, there's bootleg copies of it. You can get it. What's anyway.
1: the name of it? Did, was it The Dollhouse? The Doll Makers. Oh, Doll Makers. It, it, it won an Emmy yeah. Award in 1984. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so Grandpa uh, went to Akron and uh, kept playing his, his music and... Um, And how did he get back down south and and to Nashville?
0: He won a talent show when he was a kid and traveled all over the country with um, another Kentucky singer by the name of Bradley Kincaid who just heard him do a benefit show in Akron and said I want you in my band and they ended up on WBZ in Boston, big Clear Channel station. Mm -hmm. And as Grandpa says, you know, his head got so big you couldn't even fit through the kitchen door hardly. He started making a little money for the first time, and he played all these new barn dance shows that were coming on the radio at that time. Uh, Wheeling Jamboree, the Old Dominion Barn Dance, and Mm -hmm. um, got to be, you know, quite quite a star. And uh, his entree into the big time was really up in Cincinnati on the show called the Boone County Jamboree, with uh, people like Merle Travis, Patsy Montana, the Girls of the Golden West, the Dalmore Brothers, just all the big stars, you know. And that's where he met his wife, Ramona Riggins, who was a fiddler and a great musician in her own right. And it was soon after that show that that's what really put him into the Grand Ole Opry. Was Was he grandpa at that time? Yeah, yeah, he had been grandpa since he was 22 in Boston. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, wearing that little funny hat. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Bradley Kincaid uh-huh. gave him that moniker because uh-huh. he was he was t- tended to want to take naps when they got back from their personal appearances and Barn Dance show would come on come on, air at five thirty six in the morning <laughs> Grandpa still be asleep so <laughs> it took him a long time yeah. to get to the microphone. Yeah. So. Bradley said, "Well, call yeah. him Grandpa. He's moving yeah. kind of slow today."
1: <laughs> so uh, after he uh, got that kind of prominence that he needed in in Cincinnati, what happened?
0: Well, he went to Nashville. They invited him to join the uh, Grand Ole Opry, and him and uh, Ramona moved to, uh, and Stringbean, another Kentucky banjo player. Goodlettsville. that's right. Yeah, they yeah. moved to Goodlitzville and bought him a little farm that backed up. In fact, they went partners on a little farm, him and Stringbean yeah. and Ramona. And uh, they just lived a, a good old life down there, did a lot of fishing together, you know, and hunting and that kind of stuff, and Grandpa wrote... You know that song, "Old Rattler," about his coon hounds. Well, that was true. You know, he did. He coon hunted a lot. of fish yeah. and Went in and did his show on the opera, and of course toured a lot too. Mm-hmm. But um, he he lived the life he sang about.
1: And uh, of course, he uh, the the I believe this is right now. He was still very much alive when Stringbean was murdered. Is that? That's right. Oh yeah. yeah. In fact, he was the one Lost who discovered the bodies. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And, they were and uh, gonna go fishing together that listeners, day. that is a uh, string bean. Was another uh, he haul favorite and a star and a grand opera star. Sort of a he was a um, he was a musician and a singer, but he was a comedian too. I mean, he right. had he was uh, his act was was, com- was uh, comedic as well as music, and uh, they were they were close friends. And he was murdered. Uh, I think uh, the story was uh, David, if I remember correctly, somebody thought that he, he kept a lot of money at home. Yes, and some, was the story. Yeah. And some, um, some uh, fellows uh, went in there. I think there were two of them. Uh, they mm-hmm. they caught them, uh, di- didn't they? They, they, they did. They, and,
0: yeah. and, and when they came up for parole, Grandpa always testified at their parole hearing. They always asked him to come in, mm-hmm. make his recommendation. He said, don't. He said, just yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let them rot in here.
1: And you said, uh, I, I'd forgotten this too, that Grandpa died on the stage of the Grand Ole Opry.
0: He had a stroke, yeah, during the performance, and didn't die that at that immediately, but a month or two later, he—I mean, he never regained consciousness again after that stroke on the stage. So, uh, that's if you're going to go, that's the way to go. Yeah.
1: David, as a Chautauqua performer, um, why do you think these stories
0: are important? Our lives these days with the media especially with the internet, uh, have become so homogenous. We all see the same stores, the same products, the same political line, you know, over and over with the the 24-hour news cycle, you know. There's no variation, not like there was when I was sitting on my granddad's porch in Pike County listening to him spin tales about... uh, any anything. I mean, all the people that lived in that neighborhood to him were characters, and he 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 was just a source of endless fascination and instruction and just fun. And that's missing in our lives. Uh, and if the Chautauqua performers can give an unusual angle to some of these stories that we hear about in elementary school, maybe fourth grade Kentucky history, or you know some of these. Uh to me, it just it enriches us, gives us far more perspective on the human condition than you could ever get from listening even to NPR.
1: Do you think audiences will ever grow tired of stories?
0: No, no, not at all. Stories are innate to the human being, I think. I mean, people were sitting around caves telling stories 10,000 years ago. We know this from cave paintings in France. And um, no, I think stories are at the very root of what it is to be human. We struggle all the time to tell our own story. I don't know anybody that really knows very much about themselves except in, in, in except they cast their lives in terms of a story, and that story changes through their life. Um,
1: David Hurt is a um, Chautauqua actor, a performer for Kentucky Humanities. Uh, He plays the characters of Lily Cornett uh, from Eastern Kentucky, and Grandpa Jones, who was born in Kentucky and spent some time all over the country and came back to Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, is well-known as a Kentuckian. And uh, he is available uh, for... Many performances uh, of these two characters uh, on our website, uh, kyhumanities.org. You can click Chautauqua and get in touch with David, and we'd be glad to send him out all across the state of Kentucky and beyond. So, David, thank you very much for joining us on the
0: podcast. You're welcome, Bill. It's been fun. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud.